Hey everybody, excited to let you know we're dropping a new podcast with Meredith Guerrero. We recorded this over Christmas break. Meredith was here uh, visiting um, her sister and brother-in-law, good friends of ours, and uh, we were having a chat over Christmas break and I was like, hey, would you be interested in recording a podcast with me? And uh, sure enough, two days later, we were uh, at the office doing so. So I'm, I'm excited for you to hear this because Meredith's got a very intriguing background. Um, got her start at Bain, uh, then really wanted to go the designer fashion route. And now she's working with, uh, she finds herself working with a ton of scientists in the research field, um, doing some really cool stuff um, to try to really change the outcomes of, uh, of Americans health-wise and uh, the world health-wise. And she explores all of that with us. We have a really fun conversation. She shares kind of her decision-making process along the way and how really she never envisioned being in this role, but how it's a perfect suit for her skill set and how much she loves it every day. At the end, we end up talking about um, kind of riffing on some health stuff that's, that's pretty fun and interesting from my perspective. So I really hope you enjoy the podcast. She was a blast to talk to, and I hope you check it out. Without further ado, Meredith Guerrero, thank you for coming on Beers and Careers. Welcome. Thank you. Well, I welcomed you to your show. Yeah, it's fine. This is one of the most <laughs> impromptu podcasts. That's so much fun, by the way. Um, Meredith is in town um, and is the sister of my best friend's wife. Correct. Okay. That was like a lot right there on a Friday at 3 o'clock. But we, were ha um, we got to hang out on Christmas. We are hanging out, having some good conversations. I was like... Let's come on a podcast. <laughs> Let's do this while you're here in town from Colorado. Good so enough to record. Thank you, for, thank you for driving the 20 minutes up to Marlboro. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Um, do you want to start maybe with, um, other than the fact that you're currently living in Colorado, kind of what you do today and sure. who you are, and then I'll ask some rapid fires and we'll jump right in? Sure. Cool. Um, I have said that if to give my elevator pitch, I need a 100-story building, so cut me <laughs> off or give me the sign to keep going if I'm just going off on a tangent. But today, I'm the CEO of the Colorado Longitudinal Study. Uh, if you live in Colorado, it's Colorado. If Colorado. you live here, it's Colorado. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> Rado. Colorado. Um, and we are a longitudinal cohort study. Um, that means that we are getting volunteer participants to give a blood sample and answer survey questions about their health and their family health once a year for a decade or longer. And we're collecting and storing that blood in such a way that all different kinds of researchers can use it to study lots of different kinds of conditions and diseases and, and health trajectories. And as we, as we all age, some people will stay very healthy, some will get sick, and we'll be able to look back into those blood samples and see the earliest biomarkers of disease, which you can't do today because people don't go to the doctor until they're symptomatic, until mm -hmm. they already are sick. So thinking this proactively with a large population, we're not looking for people who are at a high risk, um, is is not really been done before. And that's also why we're a nonprofit, because it's not a moneymaker. Right. <laughs> it's Very really cool, just trying to capture capture current states of health mm. in a really um, powerful way. To be predictive, you need large sample sizes. Yes. Yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. What a cool... Uh, I was enamored when I heard about you t telling me about it because it makes so much sense from my perspective of like you need some sort of uh, baseline to start making hypotheses totally. um, or hypotheses. How does a woman with a psychology degree and an integrated marketing degree know so much about lipids now? 
<laughs> do I sound like I know what I'm talking you about? You do. You do. You nailed it. Like when I was talking to you and you were talking about lipids, I was like, ah, she, you're like, cholesterol's a lipid. I was like, that's more my speed. So. Okay. <laughs> well, I actually co-founded Kohl's um, with two biologists, uh, a neuroendocrinologist and a geneticist who went on to study proteins. Okay. So this was certainly not my brainchild. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that this need existed. Um, it was Larry Gold, who sort of was the visionary of okay. this. Um, and he has spent 60 years studying proteins that change in the blood over time. And proteins are a much more fragile molecule than DNA. So there are lots of biobanks out there, um, even the UK Biobank that started in 2000. And they were really convinced that studying DNA would answer all the questions of that we had about health and disease. Um, but back then, when they thought DNA was all you needed, they would take blood from somebody and they would leave it on the lab bench until the end of the day, and then they'd process all of the samples together. Mm. But that means that some samples were being processed within 20 minutes and some were being processed within nine hours. And the amount of variation, um, that didn't matter for DNA, but proteins start to degrade when they've been out of the body for 30 30 minutes. Oh, wow. So we actually have to have a protocol where the phlebotomist draws the blood, takes it into a wet lab, puts it in a centrifuge, and gets it into the freezer within 30 minutes. Whoa. Um, so there are very few studies that are not intentionally studying one specific protein or one specific pathway mm -hmm. um, that that have a pr protocol that's that rigorous. rigorous. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And oh, I still really, didn't answer your question, actually. No, no, we'll get into it. I'll, I'm not going to let you off the hook on that. But that's re that's really interesting. I, um, you know, as someone who just understands like protein from like the, like the basic, like I know I need to get my protein in. Uh, <laughs> so like it's, it's like but here you describe it as fragile is interesting, I guess. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't. I would have never predicted that, but. Well, and proteins, as in like the large muscles, the meat that we eat is different yeah. than the. Protein the protein molecules that. that are in our circulating blood. Okay. Um, I please don't ask me no, to explain why. I won't. How they're I won't. different. Dude, that's insane. Now I'm like, what am I taking <laughs> after the gym? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All the supplements. Larry likes to say all the supplements you take just make really expensive, expensive pee. pee. I know my yeah. doctor just says that. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Sometimes I need the placebo. But before we get into um, you getting your psych degree and then your master's in marketing, uh, so people can get to know you. First off, we are. Uh, this will be on video, but we are drinking out of moose cups, <laughs> like straight out of Christmas vacation, which yeah. is unbelievable. And we're drinking a white Russian from Left Hand Brewery in Cheers. Colorado. Um, but real quick, people get to know you. What is your favorite drink since we're on beers and careers? I think I gave you three. Um, yes. Uh, for beer, everybody in Colorado likes IPAs, but I really don't like the bitter. So I... Amen. I love Avery. They do really great stouts. Okay. So Tweak is a 13.1% alcohol stout that I love. Um, and this is another one. This is from Left Hand. Um, and then, let's see. I went to Sonoma a couple years ago and went to a really cute winery called St. Francis. Mm. Um, and so I've been... I've been lucky to find their wines in the grocery store in Colorado. Oh, wow. So I've been drinking their old vine cool. Zin. Yeah, it's nice. You That's literally really cool. you see the little, you know, the yeah. tower on the picture, the label, and you're like, oh, I went there. Um, and I've been drinking a lot of bubbles lately, so I've okay. been doing. I don't like expensive stuff for myself if yeah. it's me drinking alone. Yeah. Um, but Chandon, I think, is about you know, it's not Moet. Yeah. It's not. It's right, kind of mid. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little better than the Prosecco. 
No, I get it. I get it. I've been, uh, you sent that. I, sh- I was thinking about it. I have a sparkling rosé at home, which is like, you know, some of my friends are not happy to hear that I say that, but it's <laughs> delicious. Um, do you have a favorite curse word? I do. I hon- honestly, I wanted to be more creative, so I looked up curse words, but the reality is, fuck. Yeah. I just, it's, my, it's my go-to. I think we're over 85% now. Okay. If so you, you're it can in be positive. Company. It can be negative. It can be enthusiastic. It's it so be, versatile. Yeah, exactly. It's so versatile. Um, are you a quote person? Yes. Oh, cool. I'm a sucker for quotes. Love that. Do, do you have any favorite ones? Or I one do. I actually I couldn't yeah. remember it, so I screenshotted it. And this is honestly one that like sometimes makes my voice quiver, but I mm-hmm. love it so much. It's from Martin Luther King Jr. It says, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving. Mm. And that, mm. especially in sort of my startup mentality that I've been in as we started this nonprofit, I took that quote and I posted it on our whiteboard. Mm. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that we can't fly yet. We know we're going to. Right. But we're crawling right now, and that's just the reality. Progress. Yeah. Progress. We're making progress. Especially when you, uh, I'm guessing in that, in the scenario you're in, there's a lot of excitement, but at the same time, it feels like you've got the world against you in terms of time and um, the other things that come with running a business. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there are many days that I don't know what I'm doing and just mm. doing the best that I can. Right. Um, and and sometimes it's nice to look back and be like, oh wow, my best has been good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But in the in the moment, it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, I love that. My best has been good enough. I think is a is a wonderful uh, thing already to take from this. <laughs> now, what was your first job? Out of so in and no anything like first paying job. Oh, okay, that <laughs> I walked to my parents' office. My parents owned a small contracting company together, and when I must have been like. 14. I used to walk there and stuff envelopes. I was so determined to make money when I was mm. little. I was like very Love entrepreneurial. Um, my friend and I made FEMO jewelry and literally we had business cards. We sold it out of my, we would set up a lemonade stand and then we, people awesome. would come in and we would sell jewelry to women. And, you know, the most expensive piece was $5. Oh. And we just couldn't believe it. Um, but in undergrad, I had two amazing internships where I did event planning for it was basically fundraising okay. um, for nonprofits. And um, I did oh, one of those okay. in Boston with the Castle Group. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it even exists today. Okay. Um, but then I got to go abroad, and I did it in London with a very prominent charity that supports kids' cancer research. Wow. So um, I, I enjoyed that. You know, the logistics of planning events is something that I enjoy. And then knowing that I was actually doing some good in mm. the world felt really good yeah um but still graduating with a degree in english and psychology i had no idea what i wanted to do with my life right um so i ended up working for a management consulting firm right out of, right out of school right out of school and i was cool. an assistant so i wasn't a consultant yep um but i worked for an incredible company bain and company mm-hmm. with i've a, heard of them <laughs> you know <laughs> little guy yeah um but their headquarters is here in boston they are um, they have an amazing corporate culture and I, you know, I think regardless of what your position is, if you're curious and you're interested, you can absorb mm-hmm. things from, from wherever you are. So I supported managers and then partners that were in a lot of different industries and was able to be exposed to finance and healthcare and retail and, you know, consumer product goods and all of that. Yeah. And it really did give me, um, an insight into the types of 
careers I might want. Yeah, you got like a bird's eye view of many different industries. Exactly. Well, not just a bird's eye view. You got to hear some yeah, you rubber get, meat in the road kind of. Totally. And, yeah. and actually, to be honest, there were a lot of consultants that were very intimidated by the senior partners mm. and the hierarchy that they felt was very different than what I felt because I was literally like, hey, your kid's sick today. Are you going to go pick them up from school? Like, yeah. you really get to know senior executives as people. Yes. And that helped me a lot just to level the playing field. Because now, I mean, I I literally email with Nobel laureate scientists on a fairly regular basis. And I'm just wow. like, hey, nice yeah. to see you, Tom. Hope yeah. you're doing well. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> like, right. It's like that person puts their shoes on one at a time, too. Exactly. Yeah. It's... um. That's a hard thing, though. That's a hard thing. I feel like the, like the the getting over the intimidation factor. I don't know. For us in sports, we always called it helmet shock. Oh. It was like when you were playing a team that was like famous, okay. and they had a cool like album that you know mm, the intimidation. Had, had notoriety. It was like helmet shock. And my coach always used to say, "So they put their cleats on one at a time too." It's like it's the tr- which is the truth. Yeah. Definitely translates into the business world. Titles freak people out. Totally, it's not. It's not necessary. Not at all. Not at all. And it is a, um, I think also like this podcast was designed for people either searching to figure out what they wanted to do or get inspired by other people's stories. And I think that's a wonderful takeaway as like, as you're searching for a job, like ask people and most, and I would find that most people and honestly, I think the higher up you go from an org chart standpoint are more willing to help because someone helped them get there. So I, I think, you know, if this can be the nudge to push over the end, hit click send on that email that you want to send. Totally. I co- totally agree. And honestly, it's like you impressing somebody with your work skills is one thing that might happen. Good for you. But right. it's probably something like your shared love of a good nitro beer yes. or golf or a sports team. Like there are ways that you can connect with people at any level that humanize you both and sort of su- supersede Yes, business. It, it's the truth. The relationship really matters yeah. at the end of the day. I, I, I do want to hear about your pivot out of Bain, but how long were you in London? Six months. Cool. <laughs> so you're in undergrad for that? Yes, I was a junior. Awesome. So study obsessed. abroad. I would have loved to have lived there, but I was yeah. living in South Kensington. I was living like... Help you know, me. I don't know London. I'm sorry. Um, Just like the... Near the, near the region... Gardens, park, region parks where the Buckingham Palace yes, was, that okay. kind of thing, like near Harrods. Okay, like, all right. There was a there was some oil tycoon who had like a thirty eight million pound penthouse like across the street from where we were staying. Whoa! And and we were I was in a dorm where nine girls were sharing one bathroom, so we were not living like that. But <laughs> but you were right but there. Geographically, Cities. it was it was fantastic. Cool. So, so I realized that if I if I were to move there, I would not have that type of right. experience. Yes. So you wouldn't I, move I to Midtown home. Manhattan in the beginning. Well, no, but then you know when I lived in New York, I lived I Did lived you? in Manhattan. Did so. is it, hey. <laughs> I just location, location, it's location. The, it is the truth. That's so cool. Do you, did you um did you draw on studying abroad, definitely do it. I'm guessing you would be your advice based on the way you just said that. Yes. Yeah. A million percent. Yeah. You know, I had a cousin who did like semester at sea, he got an amazing experience from that. It hadn't even occurred to me. You know, I think you went to Australia. I did. I did a year and a half in Australia after college. I would have loved to have done that. It was cool. Um, But for me, it was really, I needed to go somewhere English speaking because I'm not great with languages, Mm -hmm. but there's still a huge amount of the world out there that is accessible to And it's wildly, it's it's wild how much you can underestimate the cultural differences of an English speaking country. It's like not the same place. I mean, although you could say that about Colorado and Boston, but, um, (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's true. I've always found too that it was um, you learned a lot about cultures, you learned a lot about people, but I think it puts you in such an uncomfortable environment, maybe that you it just forces you to um, learn about yourself. Absolutely, just half the battle, half the battle. So no, that's really cool. So how did you get after Bain? You you're going after the marketing route here. Mm So you got I, your degree in marketing. I did. I and I, you know, I left Boston, a city with a lot of great schools, to move yes. to New York for school. You did. Um, so I was working at Bain, and we had incubated a hedge fund, and I was able to transition with that team, and that was closing down at the same time as my that my dad got sick. Okay. So my dad um, was diagnosed with cancer, and as much as I loved the people that I worked with at Bain and loved the culture. I, I didn't feel like I had a very strong purpose, social purpose in what I was doing. So clearly I decided to get a marketing degree. Right. Um, <laughs> so my rationale there had been when I got my psychology degree in undergrad, my favorite was social psychology. I love using data to understand people. Mm. And people aren't rational, but the data can show how people behave emotionally. Correct. And you know, a lot of it was unfortunately from like consumer product goods companies. It's like put something on the third shelf instead of the second shelf and make sure that it's red and make sure that there's a kid that's smiling on it. And that was sort of this manipulation that I I didn't love, but I loved how you could test mm. and, and figure things out about people's behavior. Um, and when I went back to school, it was 2010, and um, social media was sort of still this newly evolving thing. Um, and I think I think the song "United Hates Guitars" had just come out or something. Oh no! There I, was yeah. this YouTube song where a passenger who was a musician had checked his luggage, his guitar under the plane, and it just got annihilated. And so he ended up making a YouTube song that was like, and it might not have even been United, so maybe it's not a great example, but yeah. it was like United Hates Guitars. It was literally him broadcasting a, a testimonial about yeah. how much he yeah. hated United. So I felt like... I felt like social media had given consumers a voice that they didn't have when I was in school in the early 2000s. So I was actually excited about marketing and learning what customers wanted and having a dialogue. Mm. And so I moved to New York, and this again, in the backdrop of my dad being sick and trying to find something that that I was passionate about. So I ended up um, interning at Prada, I an- interned at Ann Taylor. Um, I, I was offered, I would say, the dream job at Prada um, when my boss had gotten sick and needed to take a uh, you know, sabbatical or leave. I basically got offered the interim possession of senior marketing, I don't know, mucky muck. Yeah. And I turned it down. I was basically like, that is proof to me that I shouldn't be here in New York. Mm. Like, that was not going to make me happy. Mm. I could just tell. I had experienced, I, I had been very, you know, wide-eyed and hopeful when I got to New York, and my experience was that, no, retail companies still weren't listening to consumers. They don't really care. Oh, interesting. So so why it didn't, why you said no to the job was because you felt like even if you brought data to the table, they, Prada was not going to change their strategy? Yeah. Well, and Prada is a family-owned company, I mean, which I didn't know, but like, you know, I mean, I didn't know LVMH, that. a lot of the fancy brands have all sort of become part of conglomerates, but Prada... I actually don't know if it is still today, but when I was in school in 2012, 2011, mm. um, it was owned by wow. Mauricio Prada, or the 
family. So the, literally all the strategy was developed in Milan, and then the U.S. offices were just sort of, you know, execution. Um, there wasn't a lot of stra strategy there. Wow. All right. Yeah, that's, in that's interesting. So, so did that put a sour taste in your mouth for all retail? It did. And okay. so I went to Ann Taylor. Ann Taylor, the CEO at the time, had come from one of Bain's primary competitors. So they were using a lot of data. Okay. Um, but there, I think, honestly, ugh, I shouldn't be bad-mouthing, but the people were just really catty. It was sort of what you would envision, <laughs> um, you know, New York people uh. being like, like, Size two people always getting doing juice cleanses and being unhappy. I was like, that's not for me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. So it was really yeah. So it was also a, I don't want to say a toxic environment. No, but culturally. But not what you were not what you were looking for yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Exactly. So how so what did you what do you do from there? My mother had gone to high school in Boulder, Colorado. Yes. And so my grandparents had lived there. Um and by this point, when I finished my graduate degree, I think you know my family history a little bit. Both mm -hmm. of my parents had passed away. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to move back to Boston as much as I wanted to stay close to my sister. Yeah. I knew I didn't want to stay in New York. Yeah. So I basically just Time packed up a U-Haul and, yeah, yeah. and uh, moved myself to Colorado. To kind of for, to give yourself healthy distance, start a new kind of thing. Yeah. So it was very personal based. Very. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So that... I mean, I just think that's an important move where it's like you sometimes you look at people's careers and you could sit there on your LinkedIn and be like, oh, then she left and went to Deco Accessories because she probably got a sick offer. And it's like, well, no, she was taking care of herself. Yeah, exactly. I was, I, I do think I have had a decent compass, mm. sort of moral compass, but also just compass about what's important and what in my life I choose to measure and aspire to and happiness in contentment mm -hmm. is a big part of that. How has that uh, uh, North Star, if you will, I heard you just say self-awareness. This is kind of what I heard. North Star is Bain's. But is it? Is True it North, yeah. True North Star. Um, <laughs> how has that changed since, like, for you, from, like, you being in New York City to, like, present day, Meredith? Like, how, what, what changed in terms of, like, what makes you happy at the end of the day? I think, I don't necessarily think that the things that make me happy have changed, but okay. my trust, my faith in myself, my listening to my own needs, mm -hmm. um, I can sort of, I can make those, I can feel it and identify it and address it more quickly. Whereas, you know, in my move to New York, I think was very much um, sort of self I was taking care of myself. I mean, I was moving away from my family while my dad was sick, but I think a big part of that was like, I'm not going to be the person taking care of my whole family. Mm. That's not my responsibility yeah. as a young 20-something. Yes. Um, and and then moving to Colorado was acknowledging basically that, hey, I did this thing that looks really cool on paper mm -hmm. and that, I, that everyone thinks is going to make you happy, mm -hmm. and it didn't. And so, like, what... What really will make me happy? Right. Um, and so, you know, I've been in Colorado for 13 years, going on 13 years. And, you know, I've made little moves, but, like, I know, I know I'm in the right place. Awesome. Awesome. That, and uh, that's a hard thing to find. Oh, I never felt homesick when I lived on the East Coast. Mm. I felt a little homesick for London when I left London. But, mm. like, now, 
not to mention this dreary weather doesn't Dude, help. You, but you hit it at the worst. <laughs> I mean, you're from here. You get I it. I know. It's it gotten is. worse. Yes. <laughs> and Colorado is 300 sunny days a year. It is. And it's dry. And yeah. So. Um, you brought really robbing it in around the holidays there. No, it's, it is the truth. It's, there's a. Um, I was always shocked. I, I've been to Colorado a few times. Um, I also couldn't get over how all the people are fit. It's like the wild. It's like I think I it attracts those people. I I do. I also think they because of the weather and because of the culture, they're outside a lot. Absolutely. But I remember. I don't know. I don't know. I was talking to my mom or something. The first time when I played at the Vail lacrosse tournament, okay. I remember telling my mom. She's like, "How is it?" And I was like, I, "I haven't seen an overweight person since I land since I got out of Denver Airport." It's like wow. I bet like being at that high altitude probably does burn a few more calories. It's a day. got it right. It's an impressive thing. America could probably learn a little bit more from from that yeah. state. Um, so then you're there in now, now you're doing marketing, but you didn't spend a whole lot of time at that at that you spent two years there at your first stop at Deco. Yes, that was actually that was a startup. Okay. In, oh, so you just entrepreneurial all the way. Totally. I mean, and that was really me consulting. I did um, consulting. That's your company? No, no. Okay. Sorry. That's a, another a woman started a company out of her garage, and I believed in what she was doing. I liked it. I really, she, she had a vision for an e-commerce website that basically barely existed. Okay. So she had this interesting product where um, you could hang curtains with every single element of the curtain was customizable. So the color of the, oh God, I don't even know the words anymore. The knob, the color oh, of yes. the, the thing that you hang over the curtain yeah, rod. The metal everything. rings, all exactly. that, yeah. Um, and she had, you know, she had done the research to make the knobs powder coated and like they were very high quality. And she wanted you to be able to, on the website, switch out every element and every color and compare them. Um, before you place an order wow. and that really wasn't a thing in 2011 no, no. Um, so that was a, a really fun e-commerce project um, but I was I was working part-time and I was sort of just sort of giving myself the rest that I needed at yeah. the same time I was gonna say how'd you meet her oh my gosh I had a friend family friend who was closing her store she had like a bed and bath store and so I went to help her, and this other, the woman who owned Deco went to help, and we were just sort of shooting the shit. Um, and she was talking about how she wanted uh, this website, and I was talking about how I had just gotten this fancy degree at NYU. <laughs> and so it sort of, it felt pretty serendipitous. Wow. Um, Wild. Yeah. Very cool. You know, I can't, I can't network, network, like, in yeah. quotes. I hate it. Like, mm. I'd need six of these. To these network. drinks to network. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, you know, at Christmas, it's like I love talking to people about uh -huh. new things. Teach me something. Yes. Um, and that that approach, I think, has led me to better opportunities than sort of the schmoozy. There like, are different ways to me? network than just showing up at a cocktail hour yeah. with everyone give their business cards. Yeah. Although, I will say, I hated it, by the way. I hate that networking. But you're good at it, I, I'm sure. I did it. I did. I got better at it. I sucked at it. In the beginning, I really sucked at it, and I th and I did get better at it. And it, um, the worst part about it is, it's as always at, for business. It's at like seven a.m. and six p.m. It's like the two times a day I'm the worst. I'm either really hyper focused and don't want to talk to anyone, or like I'm tired and creative and don't want to talk mm -hmm. to anyone. So, 
But you made, it made it work. Well, made it work. Good testing. You know, testing. I'm tall. I think we're about the same height, probably. But like, I just feel like I just like lumber over people and awkwardly <laughs> hover until there's a moment to be like, "Oh, I was eavesdropping on your conversation," and right. I agree. Hi, by the way, I'm Meredith. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It is awkward. It's it's wild how those places, by the way, have their own cultures where it's okay to interrupt people. Uh, I guess you're right. It's weird though. I, like that was a, that Davis was something you learned. Should like teach people how to a network because I would I would be all over that. You'd be all over it. I, I would argue that you have all the skills to do it. You just, if I walked I in a room with you, it. I was like, just fucking go. You would go. You, it's just sometimes people need to, like, I had that. I had a boss who was like, oh, that's would go with me and be like, you know what you're doing. Just go talk to that person. Okay. I'll keep you on my shoulder yeah. then when I'm in uh, Hey, your best is good enough. Your <laughs> best is you. good enough. Um, and then I see you went to Gold, Found, Gold Lab Foundation. You mentioned Larry Gold. Yeah. Tell us about that, because this has been really the last good bit for you decade decade yeah 10 years yeah yeah Yeah, so um larry gold the same visionary who uh came up with the vision for the colorado longitudinal study he had been a department chair at uh, the molecular cellular and developmental biology department at cu boulder so the university of colorado boulder Mm -hmm. um and gorgeous campus um and larry had um patented a few things that basically were continuing to create royalties for the university and his lab continued to get a piece of that for Mm. quite a while so he had a few million dollars in an account that he couldn't really touch for anything other than sort of university related activities so in 2010 he started running an annual conference where he basically invited his friends to come and speak and he would learn from them and then we'd have he'd have these big fancy dinners that's awesome. Um, That's and so, awesome. right? So 2010 is the only year I hadn't, I didn't go. Okay. Um, I went as a guest in 2011 and 12 and 13. And then in 2014, Larry and I were talking and he said, you know, I want to turn this into something a little bigger. I want to make this something that's sort of self-sustaining. Whoa. And um, so he and I, I think they had already set up a nonprofit, but it was called Friends of the Gold Lab Foundation. And so, or the Friends of the Gold Lab Symposium, something like that. Okay. So we changed the name, and I took over as the executive director of that. And um, basically, we kept a lot of it the same because Larry, Larry's just a, he's a very interesting mentor. I've learned so much from him about just like, like what we were talking about earlier, not being afraid to Mm. ask not being afraid to introduce yourself to fancy Mm. people, not being afraid to ask stupid questions. Larry will read, he reads prolifically, but he will be, you know, he'll send me emails at five in the morning being like, I just read this amazing article in the New Yorker and we have to get this guy. And so we keep, I keep a list going every year of people that he wants to invite to the symposium. We end up having 16 speakers over the course of two days. Wow. Um, We've started, we've recorded all of them every year, but now we've started live streaming since the pandemic. So we usually have about 400 people in the audience live and then about a thousand people have started um attending virtually um actually my sister said you would you would be somebody who would be interested in in the kind of stuff that we talk about there very what is it it's a lot of scientists it's a lot so larry's premise for the gold lab symposium was that if lay people if the general audience knew more biology and life sciences that healthcare would get better that makes so much sense it does i think it's a little optimistic Mm because there's so much crap in the mm-hmm. healthcare system. Um, but he really wants really smart people 
to talk to an educated lay audience. Yes. Um, ah, interesting. So uh, just educating the consumer at the end of the day. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Um, so we get a lot of people who are in, sort I would say, like science-adjacent industries mm -hmm. who come and just absorb what, um, what there is to learn. We've had a number of people from different, like with very deep knowledge of specific biology components, I guess, um, come together and actually work together and collaborate because oh, they found right. that they were basically studying two sides of the same coin. Wow. Um, so it has been really wonderful. Really cool. So, oh, that's wild. Do food companies come to that? They have. We've yeah. had people speak from um, Mars Corporation. Okay. So even um, the big ones. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, Larry knows a lot of people. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, it's, um, that's a really interesting mission. So that's like the goal of the gold lab is to help lay people really. Yep, understand science. Wow. Mm -hmm. And to get scientists and lay people working together and for a healthier outcome. Yes. That's okay. unbelievable. I love. It. What do you think are the biggest challenges to that beyond the optimism of Larry? Um. You know, we haven't changed the format of it really. We basically give each presenter forty-five minutes. Mm -hmm. And they, we ask them to speak for 30 minutes and then do Q&A with the audience for 15. It ends up being two very long days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the sum, of, the sum of it is more than its parts. Mm -hmm. And for the virtual audience, people who sort of pop in and out, they miss, they miss that. They yeah. miss how, how the talks connect to each other. So um, I would say a challenge is sort of getting getting people to commit to full days of their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, we get some pretty big executives coming in and they sort of want to swoop in and do a talk and leave. leave and yeah. Like, That's not the point. Right. Yeah. Keeping them there. Yeah. That's hard. Do you, um, have you seen any change from being there for so long now? Um, I guess there are a few more people that want to sort of dive bomb mm -hmm. and then, yeah. and then leave. Um, but, but the people who stay, it's like it blows their mind. They come back. They come back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they repeat. Awesome. Yeah. So so you're at Gold Lab. You're still at Gold Lab, yep. right? So you still have that, but you just also started Coles. Colorado Longitudinal Studies. We incubated Coles within the Gold Lab Foundation. Okay. Um, we basically created the idea and the first business plan. Um, there. There. And now there's now they are technically separate entities. Yes. Wild. Wild. So so. Larry, obviously, certainly big on changing the course of healthcare. How do you see, from like your perspective, of someone that's not a scientist, but but some of the marketing degree who certainly pays attention to data and emotional decisions? Like, how do you think that, um, or not? I don't want to say your analysis, but like when you when you look at the macro, mm -hmm. American healthcare system slash, just. Uh, our joke about Colorado's Coloradians being skinny. <laughs> like, like, like how, how do you see it? And have you seen it evolve? Um, I was incredibly lucky to be incubated in the gold lab foundation and, um, to basically have the backing of that entity when we got started with Coles mm. gave me the opportunity to spend the first two years basically just learning. I mean, it was, it was so fun. I wish I could also have, 
certificate that says, I, hey, you learned a lot. Right, right, <laughs> um, yeah. But it was basically like a master's program. So I got to go visit the UK Biobank, and I went oh. to Toronto to the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging. Mm. I, went, I went to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where they have the largest biobanks in the U.S., um, and I got to talk to people who created those biobanks and sort of what had they done that worked really well. I'm all about learning vicariously. Oh, so yeah. Like, oh, let yeah. Me, let me not repeat your mistakes, and please let me, you know, repeat what you did well. Right. And, and like you said, like people, the higher up you go, the more generous I think mm. people are if you're willing to ask a question. Right. Um, and you genuinely care. Yes. Yeah, th- I think that's a really good caveat is that you can't just – be disingenuous about it because they see right through it. Right. That's why they're in those positions. Totally. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, so I got to learn. And from the researcher side, everything, everyone was talking about how hard it is to get people to join and to participate, but also sort of the, how um, entrenched the, the sort of scientific method was in mm. how these studies were designed. So I would say all the studies we looked at were pre-AI, you know, they, they're really, studying big data was very cumbersome and hard, and this, the data wasn't set up in such a way that it could just sort of be manipulated easily. Consumed and analyzed, Exactly, yeah. um, and it was very challenging to change protocols, and even consent, so this mm. is, I could down, go down a really long tangent on this, but... Um, for a very long time, there was this notion that if I consent you to participate in a study about cardiovascular disease, that is, and rightly so, the only thing you can use those your samples for is cardiovascular uh, disease. But what if people sort of just end up anecdotally seeing, hey, a lot of these people seem to be getting Alzheimer's. I wish I could go back and use those samples to study Alzheimer's. Tough luck. Mm. You can't. Ethically, you can't because you were not consented to right. give data for all of that. So there are tons of resources out there that have a very... Even if I'm dead? Even if you're dead. Damn. There's a very narrowly defined window of what those samples can be used for. And it was actually the rare disease community that has championed aggressively and politically that the consum- the patient should have more control over their samples and how they're used and that actually patients want broader use of their samples, not narrower. Um, so that's changing? That is definitely changing. Whoa. There was something it, that went through um, the, ooh, the federal legislation around, it's called the, oh gosh, I just had it and I lost it, uh, the common rule. Mm. So the common rule basically went out for public opinion, and it's this idea that can samples, can biospecimens actually be generally consented? Can you say, use yes, it for anything. use it for anything? And politicians and a lot of um, science researchers thought that, no, it can't be. That's too broad. People won't agree to that. But it was patient advocacy groups that said, yes, that's absolutely what should be done. Mm. So we were looking at this while we were starting up polls because I think it common rule didn't actually take effect until, and it's not a law, it's sort of a recommendation. Yes, okay. Um, until like 2018 or something. So we were paying close attention. This will ultimately probably have implications for patients around whether or not they own their electronic medical records. So these are, this is affecting. Yeah, it's a domino effect. Oh, I didn't, oh wow, it's also related. Yeah. Wow. 
really cool though. Yeah. That, so so that's gonna change your. I mean, and then um, you add AI to the computing power of that. Exactly. And, I right. mean, it made a lot of sense. I mean, okay. So healthcare is still an area where we send off a test. If we if we want to get a lipid panel done at a local hospital for our participants, we get the result faxed back. Faxed. Faxed. That's literally the only way they will deliver that information to us. Holy shit. It's absurd. <laughs> our, my, our software engineers are like, what? Um, but that's how slow things are to change. So when you consider that large drug trials were done using paper, lots and lots of paper, um, if participants consented on paper, you couldn't give people control over, yes, I consent to this, no, I don't consent right. to this, yes, I consent to this, because there's no way that you could keep track of that on the large scale in a paper-based system. Yeah, you system. couldn't go back, yeah. But now, with technology, there's literally no excuse not to. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to just put on a filter or a sorting, you know, sort and say, mm -hmm. hey, these are the people that consented to this, these are the people that didn't. Use these it's, samples, yeah. Those things are um, antiquated, and they're still done regularly, because they've been done before. Mm. So this is definitely an area where there's, it's been helpful for me, I guess I would say, to be yeah. an outsider. Yeah. Um, to say there are certain things in research that shouldn't be changed, but there are lots of things that can change and need to change. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't understand why we still use QWERTY keyboards. Right. Bullshit. Do you know why keyboard is QWERTY? No. It's because, my mom taught me this, it's because people used to type on typewriters, and when it was just A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the whole alphabet, people typed too quickly, and it jammed the keys. So I'm like, no they, way. they did QWERTY to slow people down. And so I'm like, why? Wow. And it's why too, are we still doing it's that? It's too far. That one's too far. I can't learn to type again <laughs> at 38. I don't know. Fair enough. I'm down, I'm down with uh, predicting my health like, outcomes. But yeah, No, I don't fax them. I'm with you on that. That's bullshit. Because that doesn't affect anyone. It's like one person who is upset about that. Maybe. We would. It would be. Um, it'd be hard to learn how to type again. That's wild. Is the rare disease community particularly invested in what you're doing? Like, do they? They must. Actually, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from the rare disease community. That you can learn from them. Yes. Okay. Oh, help me with that. So there's some really, and actually, this is another place where the Gold Lab Symposium has been incredible. Larry cares very deeply about rare diseases, especially childhood diseases. Okay. Um, and so every year we have at least one speaker come and talk about a rare disease. The most passionate people we've had come to speak are parents who've basically been told by a doctor that there's, no there's nothing that they can do for their child who has this deteriorating disease, potentially probably terminal. Mm -hmm. And these, these mama bears, they go... They Hard. go to Washington. Yeah. They say, this is unacceptable. And they now are using social media. So there's a local girl in Boulder, Sophie, in Sophie's neighborhood. Her parents basically, when she was diagnosed, she was one of like five in the whole world. And using social media, her mom is now connected with over 50 people. Mm. And that actually is better for Sophie, too, because now there's 50 samples that they mm -hmm. can actually start analyzing. Um, and protocols that they can live their own lives with and someone to call when something goes awry, absolutely. like a, a network. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are, there are groups. So Sharon Terry um, runs an incredible organization called the Genetic Alliance, and they basically do advocacy work for, mm. for a number of small rare disease groups. So, you know, it's a lot of people when something happens, they want to start their own charity. Yes. 
you end up having a lot of redundancies and things that mm. are sort of siloed if everyone has their own charity. Genetic Alliance works really hard so that the data that each one of those rare disease organizations collects, if they can put that into a shared biorepository, other, other people, other investigators can really? access it too. So Coles really, rather than trying to recreate the wheel, it's on us to say, hey, if somebody else has already done it better, we should be asking the Genetic Alliance how we should be organizing our data, not not do, figuring out a whole new way and then being frustrated yeah. when the data doesn't work. Re and redo it, yeah. Oh, I have someone I have to introduce you to. Please. Actually, a uh, buddy in town, Jameis Lafreniere, whose daughter is Sophie, ironically enough, Sophie's Hope Foundation, and she is a rare disease uh, that fortunately is not terminal. Um, I'm going to butcher it. So I'm not going to go there, but I mean, it basically, it's just like the, from what, I, how I understand it as a layman is, uh, she has to have a perfect balance of glucose and her body doesn't regulate it. Like in the opposite way of a diabetic, wow. like she has to have, I want to say it's cornstarch might be corn syrup, but at like regular feedings, like every three or six hours just to maintain the levels. And, um, he's got a great program going. Davis is, um, pretty involved in helping him raise money every year. Yeah, it's a, it right in town, awesome guy, runs the marathon every year to raise money. Really good, really great family and really good cause, but. I, I think diabetes is one of those diseases that we will look back on in 20 years and say, we didn't know shit. You, really? Absolutely. I mean, hmm. you know, type one used to be called juvenile diabetes. diabetes yes. I know three people who've gotten juvenile diabetes in their 30s. Yeah. And, you know, people, you know, this is sort of where if I'm going to be cynical about the pharmaceutical industry, I think there are plenty of people in the industry who are really trying to do the best, the yes. best they can for society. Yes. But with diabetes, it's kind of like dialysis for <laughs> kidney disease. It's, it's nice to have a, something where people don't die, but they're dependent on you for the rest of their life. It's, it's an and, and then like when I think about what you're doing with the outcomes, like my first thought is like, what are we eating? Oh, yeah, big time. Right? Like, what are we eating? And, I mean, I think you and I could probably talk about that for hours, so we'll save the people's ears. But, like, we're, we're poisoning yes. our families. Absolutely. And uh, when you said the slow to change thing with the fax machine, the first thing that came to mind was the food pyramid. It's like we're telling people to suck down sugars, right, and grains, and it's like, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> about that. There's a lot of research out there, but we don't change that. Well, you and I have talked sort of offline, too, about sort of the – economics, if you will, about, hey, nutrition, not nutrition companies, but food companies are able to sell us whatever they want, mm. and they aren't at all responsible for the negative outcomes in our health. Exactly. Those are costs that have to get incurred in other places in our economy, and that is sort of an unsustainable model. It's such bullshit. It's such bullshit. I mean, I, I, I'm, uh, unfortunately... I'm off Instagram now these days because I'm trying to get some time back. But I'm on Twitter, and I, which I don't know if that's a good thing. But it, but like, and a lot of it is the following of that kind of stuff. And it's like the simplest things that we eat. Crazy how much they've changed over the last 20, 30 years, and how much stuff is outlawed everywhere else but here. Oh yeah, that's the scary thing is that when you start to travel abroad and you go, well, you can't. You can. Why are Fruit Loops? Not neon color. Right. It's, it's like because it's carcinogenic. And the same package of whatever, Teddy Grahams, has very yeah. different ingredients here and abroad. And it's like, and then you come to America and you get off the plane. It is shocking how much we look different. I don't know if that was your experience after being abroad. It but was the worst. I remember oh. being on my Razor cell phone <laughs> that I turned on for the first time in two years after I got home. And I landed 
and I call my mom or dad, I forget which one, my parents, and said, I'm, I'm back on, you know, I'm, I'm back on American soil. Thank God. And they're like, how is it? And I'm like, it was a long flight. And I was like, I hate how fucking people talk here and everyone's fat. I was like, I was like, what happened? That's <laughs> <laughs> what happened. But it's, but I, I, there was a period of my time when I was in my 20s when I thought people were overweight because they were lazy. Now I don't feel that way. Now I feel like there, certainly we are lazier as a culture, no doubt. But we're poisoning ourselves. Well, you know, I don't know if you binge any network, any uh, Netflix documentaries about like the blue zones or anything but um are those the places where the people live li- the ab- when really long let right? many people in the community live to be 100 or yes more. yes yes they have significant i have heard about rates. it but i have not watched it oh you should okay there's some really good stuff because it's it's basically the antithesis of the fast-paced life of compartmentalize everything and you sit like a yeah. sloth for 12 hours a day and then you go do 40 minutes of intense exercise right it's like no if you actually like spend an hour and a half in your garden and then you go and cook dinner with your friends and you eat a hearty meal together Mm. that is much more yeah living much more Mm -hmm. but you know i have to admit for coles we do not currently have a nutrition Mm. component to even to our surveys because there's Mm. the food recall diaries and the way that we measure how people consume calories don't work. So, you know, yeah. with and data, like, it's shit in, shit out. Yeah. But, like, also, you're still going to be able to predict the biomark. Like, the standard American diet is the standard American diet, how shitty it is, right? That's fair. There are a lot of It'd people. Be, it almost would hurt you, I think. If I mean, maybe not. Would it hurt you if you had some data that was, like, pure in terms of, like, people were really on the ball? No, but I think that is for sure. The people that would do be willing to do that and do it accurately they sort of self-select for a bias that to me is not representative of the normal american diet correct like i you know the the people in boulder who are studying uh, who are training for you know ultras uh, ultra yeah like yeah they'll do it yeah they're not going to teach us anything about joe schmo who sits on his couch eating mcdonald's a hundred percent yeah it's a uh food's an interesting problem i feel like as a parent it's really changed my mindset on it too so? Like I like I just like I, my parents were pretty good about what we eat, and now it's like my brother was on ADHD pills, mm-hmm. and he hated them for sure. And and I think he you know I think he's fine with me talking about it. But like, I I've got a I've got a son who is off the walls, mm-hmm. and it, like a perfectly medicated a perfect child for medication in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Like he fits the bill. It's like and I've my wife and I have talked. It's like there's no way I'm medicating that child. I'm going to make sure he doesn't crank sugar and he eats and he gets his runs in before he goes to school so he can concentrate. But, like, we're not going to put him on drugs mm. when he's nine. You know, like, that's kind of – that. so that's more of how it's affecting me. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and I will say as a, a woman who grew up in the 80s and the 90s, yeah. had plenty of body image issues – Anybody who studies nutrition and doesn't think about the emotional component of food is missing the mark. One million percent. You can't just study macro, micronutrients. No. It's no. why do people eat? People, why do people overeat? When do people restrict and mm. why? Those, to me, all have important implications into the health of your body and your, your well-being. It, it definitely seems like it's a very complicated issue that... Uh, to your point, some people are taking advantage of. 
And I think that's what sucks. Yeah. I think I think I think it sucks that you have to go to the grocery store and be that educated of a consumer. Totally. We've got enough stuff to worry about. You know, like if we're gonna lean on the government for something, help us with our food. Oh yeah. But um, no, it's an interesting topic. I'm really in, you're someone who we're gonna have to get an update from. <laughs> we are that. like, I mean, well, you've got the long term data, and I think that's gonna be so interesting. And are you expecting that it's gonna take another ten years? Like. How do you, how do you look at that? Like like because I get like right now it's like we got to nail our protocols. We got to get as much engagement from the community as we can yeah. to participate. Well, but you don't seem like the patient type. I don't feel like you're gonna wait around ten years. <laughs> Neither is my board. We are yeah. all chomping at the bit. Okay, but you know we're not chomping at the bit for people to get sick. Yes. We, in many, in the studies that I've seen, when people, when researchers are anxious to see disease, mm-hmm. they target much older people. They target people who are at high risk of getting a chronic disease or sure. a heart attack or something. That doesn't teach you about the general population. So I mm-hmm. am, I am impatient for getting enrollment and involvement from the community. I'm unwilling to sacrifice the quality of the data that we collect for anything um but when it comes to because ultimately that's your competitive advantage exactly i mean that's the only we're not contributing value in the research pipeline if we don't have really high quality data and Mm. that i don't have to you don't have to be a scientist to know how to collect good data right um so we can still be i can still contribute something there 100 percent. when really it's it's catalyzing this community to participate and then, you know, I think it's that, yeah, we, we're not going to understand the mysteries of heart disease in two years. But when we have tons of participants, my hope is that participants will start asking health questions. Yes. And saying, what is, tell me why, you know, the community that I grew up in, I grew up in Wayland, Massachusetts, where my sister in her grade, so many kids had diabetes in mm. her grade that they started testing the well water. We're just like, what the hell were they testing for? We don't even, we don't know what to test for. Mm. So I'm eager to start collecting data. I'm impatient. Well, we've already started, but I'm impatient to collect really good data. Mm-hmm. In volume. In volume. Yeah. But then the analysis of it, I would just call that like job security. Like, yeah. <laughs> I want that to be yeah. my life's mission. And like, hopefully, I know AI today has bias, but as, as we work, that will hone over time. Well, and I feel like your application is a particularly perfect one to avoid bias. And I apologize for... Um, no, let it rip going on this tangent right at the end, but um, the other thing that I hear repeatedly with every single research project that I've come across just about, unless it was focused on an underrepresented community, that basically they would have a caveat in sort of like the, what are the things that could have, you know, skewed your data? It's, we had a, probably had a bias sample because the only people we could collect from were middle-class white people. Hmm. And that is just sort of across the board mm-hmm. what people say. And that's because researchers who are in academia, who don't have marketing backgrounds, they yeah. have science, science backgrounds, and who basically think that the general lay public should be grateful to participate in research. Right. They don't get it. They don't get it. Yeah. And so basically the fact that the first person I hired was a community engagement manager who is also fluent in Spanish, and luckily mm-hmm. she's also fluent in French. She's wonderful. Whoa is to say that we're prioritizing the diversity of our cohort from day one. This is not going to be an afterthought. 
Because like you said, especially if we're trying to get AI to train models on this data, if we don't have a representative cohort, it will only increase inequity. Mm. So that is another huge point. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love the way you're approaching it though. It's completely from a marketing standpoint as opposed to like a, what's the path of least resistance standpoint, oh, right? I mean, I mean, when you think about marketing, it's sort of like, yeah, some customers cost more to, to acquire. That's a, but that's okay. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. The lifetime value uh, of that customer is higher. I never, I never would have considered that issue. You know, like just, I don't know your world. It's so interesting. Um, thanks for sharing it with us, by <laughs> the way. That, that, that is, it's why you are going to have to give us an update. We're gonna need some level of an update. We've got, and actually, there's another kick-ass woman CEO that's due for an update. I'm kind of thinking that I might need to have like a little beers and careers symposium round update, table. Ooh, little, a little round that. table. So, um, Meredith, thank you for carving out some time in your vacation with your family to come <laughs> chat with us on beers and careers, and uh, wish you and the folks at Coles the best. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks. again.